You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 34 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Today, Leah and I are excited to have, uh, for the first time, our Director of the Office of Highway Safety, Dr. Rob Malloy, joining us and uh, welcoming back Dr. Chris Poland, who is the Deputy Director of our Office of Highway Safety. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, again, to our listeners, we are recording this podcast virtually uh, from our respective homes all over the Virginia and Maryland and District of Columbia area. So thank you for tuning in. And again, uh, Chris, welcome back to the podcast. You joined us um, in episode 28. And with our podcast that we always do, we're going to offer our uh, guests to give a little bit of a background on how they got to the board. But uh, since Chris joined us back in 28, uh, episode 28, excuse me, in 2019, to talk about School Bus Safety Week. Um, would you give us just a quick, brief recap of your background and how you got to the NTSB? Sure. Thanks, Leah and Stephanie, for having me on again. I'm really looking forward to this one. Mm-hmm. So as a brief recap, I came to the board about 22 years ago. Mm-hmm. I started as a biomechanical engineer in the Office of Research and Engineering. In 2017, I had the opportunity to switch to the Office of Highway Safety and work with Rob Malloy and his team, and I've been doing that ever since. Great. Thanks, Chris. And Rob, this is your first time with us on the podcast, so thank you for joining us. Um, would you give us a little bit more of a detailed background since we've never met you before and our listens, listeners want to know about you? Just share about your background and how you arrived at the NTSB. Thank you, Leah and Stephanie, for having me here at the uh, podcast. Uh, my background is I studied psychology and focused on attention. And in my working on attention, looked at distraction and then eventually started looking at the effects of automation as we try to allocate our attention among various tasks. And so that's where I got my PhD in studying the effects of automation on performance. And I started at the board about 25 years ago in the research and engineering group where Mm -hmm. I did various other, you know, safety studies and then investigations, uh, in the effects of automation on uh, one example would be the Royal Majesty cruise ship that mm-hmm. drifted off course and uh, grounded. So um, in about 2008, I switched from research and engineering to the Office of Highway Safety, where I focused on report production. Uh, and just five years ago, I began my career as a director of the Office of Highway Safety. And when you were doing your uh, research in PhD, were you um, were you looking specifically at transportation or were you looking at um, other forms of automation um, and what kind of veered you into the transportation world? Well, when we were doing our research on automation, one of the areas that was really prominent with automation and automation errors was the aviation domain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we had a number of incidents and even crashes where automation was a factor and people over relied on that automation. Uh, and so the work that I did, I would be quoting NTSB investigations while I was a Catholic before I came to the board oh. and then had the opportunity at a human factors conference, which is basically looking at the applied psychology on kind of crashes uh, of meeting Dr. Barry Strouch and talk to him about possibly coming to the board. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mentioned my research interests, and he said, that's great. Are you a pilot? And I'm like, no. He's like, have you worked in transportation? I'm like, no. And then I saw him the next day, and I said, wait, I worked for a year for Norfolk Southern and half a year for Amtrak. Would that count? And he's like, yes, it would. And so I was able to get a job at the NTSB, even though, you know, all my work had been based on the work they'd done. So it was really great opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's great. So uh, recently, uh, just over, just briefly before Memorial Day, we launched our social media hashtag safety reminder campaign. And that's an opportunity for the NTSB and other transportation safety organizations to offer safety reminders to the traveling public in all modes of transportation as the nation resumes operations as the stay at home orders are lifted around the country. Um, while the safety reminder advocacy campaign is for all modes of transportation, we thought it would be a great opportunity to discuss with you two the um, highway safety reminders in particular, as the majority of the population is traveling on our roadways daily. Um, additionally, we know that about 95% of all transportation-related fatalities occur on our highways. So to get us started, and this does not have to be in any particular order, um, what highway safety reminders are at the top of your mind as Americans resume normal operations in the coming days and weeks ahead? So I guess to start out, there's some there's some basics that people should focus on. Mm-hmm. So safe speeds for the roadways and for the conditions that you're operating in. We've Mm -hmm. seen a lot on the news that because the roadways aren't congested, people think that they can drive much faster than they might normally. So the speed is set for a reason on that roadway. Often that might be the speed that you can negotiate that roadway at. So following the speed limit. And then if you do have some sort of weather conditions in the summertime, we often have severe thunderstorms. So slow down. Safe Mm -hmm. speeds for the conditions as well. Seatbelts. I said I was a biomechanical engineer, so always got to <laughs> emphasize the seatbelts. Mm-hmm. Wear your seatbelt, wear it properly, wear it all the time. Now, we're also seeing that there are more pedestrians and bicyclists on our roadways. And in some cases, they may be a little bit different than what you might have been used to before. So there may be more pedestrians, there may be more bicyclists out there because this is a way to get their exercise, Mm -hmm. especially when we're talking about COVID-19 and a lot of the restrictions that we have currently on our lives. We also notice, and I see this myself when I'm out walking and biking, that when I might have stayed on the sidewalk and walked very close to people that were coming next to me, I might step into a roadway, mm-hmm. especially if it's a low-speed residential roadway. So if you're driving on these roadways, make sure you're paying attention for pedestrians, for bicyclists, for children as well, especially in the summertime. My children just ended school last year or last week. Mm-hmm. And so now they are off of school. It's summertime. They have a little bit more freedom, so they may be around. And then I guess uh, one of the last ones before I turn it off to Rob is, you know, maybe you haven't been driving your car quite as frequently as you might have previously. Mm-hmm. So check your tire pressure. This is our interaction between the vehicle and the roadway. So make sure your tire pressure is appropriate. You can find that appropriate tire pressure, usually on your doorway, in your user's manual. Mm-hmm. Check your tire pressure. Make sure that's that's a good tire pressure, especially if you're driving someplace nearby for... Um, some sort of event with your family. Thanks. And as Chris said, again, one of the things I think we need to recognize is, yes, it may be less crowded on the highways at first. Mm -hmm. um, But what we saw in the month of March is that whereas 
fatalities were uh, down overall, the fatality rate was higher because people were speeding and people were taking advantage of the open roads and not driving as safely. And, and that's driving safely um, is something that is a practiced uh, fact that we, we do this over and over again driving. But as we've not been able to drive and we start driving again, some of that feel of what the proper braking distance is and, mm-hmm. you know, s- speeds around corners, we've lost some of that. So drive a bit, bit more safely uh, to compensate for that. And one of the great things uh, during this time is we've had electronics that allow us to communicate with one another. And that connection has been great. But Mm -hmm. we need to put it down when we drive. You know, everyone expects us to be reachable now almost instantly on our electronics. But when we start driving again, we need to put those aside. Sure. Absolutely. Rob and Chris, one of the other things about the summer months that I think because of the other things that are going on in the COVID-19 and um, students not being on the roadways because school had turned to a virtual space is that the summer months are typically associated with being the hundred deadliest days on the roadways for teens. Um, and I know that over the last, I would say maybe month or couple of weeks, I've, I've seen reports of states, um, um, eliminating, although that's not the right word, but kind of waving the on the road, driving test right now for for teens who are getting their license. So before we go away from our safety reminders, I just wanted to ask you all, you know, what are your thoughts on waiving the on-road driving part for for young drivers? And then um, any advice you have for for parents as they are, you know, maybe allowing their their teens or young drivers to get out on the road again? Well, I guess I'm, I'm deep in this one, Stephanie, because my oldest is 15 and three fourths, which in Maryland <laughs> means that he is now eligible to get his learner's permit. Right. And so we're, we're stepping right into this and trying to figure out how the different programs and policies may be changed based on COVID-19 and some of the additional restrictions that we have on our lives. Um, there's obviously some key messages that we want to say to teens all the time. In, in terms of parents, though, I think it's important to understand that there are some programs that can help parents that are out there when you're talking about training your teen. And there's a number of them that I've seen. The National Safety Council has a program for teen drivers. It's a way that parents can assist their teen driver in learning. There's also one from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia as well. And it's interesting. These programs talk a lot about some of the things that we think about normally, but maybe don't come to us when we're talking about training our teen driver, that there are so many different environments that we're used to driving in that, as we were talking about earlier, what you think about on a residential street may be very different than what you think about on an expressway. And that may be different than what you would think about on a rural highway or if you're driving in downtown D.C. Teens need experience Uh in all of these different environments so that they understand what those aspects are that that they're learning and what they need to anticipate. Now, that said, when they're driving, Rob was talking about this a little bit earlier, they need to avoid the distractions. Uh So the phone has to be down there are options. We have actually been interacting with Apple and some of the other mobile phone developers and uh, providers as a result of our Mountain View, California crash, that there are some applications. You can turn on a Do Not Disturb, I'm Driving Right Now app. You may have to actively do that. Mm-hmm. But that's something to be aware of for, for your team so that they aren't getting any of the beeps or the reminders that certain notifications are coming through. 
I think the other aspect is that you have to expect the unexpected. So you have to drive in a defensive manner so that if something unexpected happens, you have an opportunity to react to that. So as I'm preparing my teen for taking the learner's permit test, and we're talking about road signs and lane markings and all the other aspects, it's also following at a safe distance so that if something unexpected does happen, you have an opportunity to react and then um, process what is happening and hopefully take good evasive maneuvers. Sure. And I think one thing that's really important, again, is spending the time with your teen behind the, the, the wheel, you know, and helping them learn how to drive and, and, and taking the time to actually get them to be proficient. Um, right. That one on the road test is really just a proof that you've done everything right. But as a parent, take the time to work with your child on different road environments and, and, and model good behavior. You know, make sure you're buckling up every time. Make sure you're not driving distracted so that they're starting from a base that's going to be safe and not, you know, learning some of your bad habits. Sure. And I think we haven't touched on, but, you know, Chris was talking about the distractions. And for teens, we know it's not just electronic distractions. Their peers are a huge distraction. So um, as we were talking about things that we want to tell our teens for parent resources, you know, knowing what your state's graduated licensing uh, law is, what restrictions, nighttime restrictions. Um, Rob and I have kids who are who are already drivers. And so um, I know that uh I have certainly learned a lot working in the transportation state space, but one area that I overlooked was um, teens and drowsy driving. And I um, I became very aware of that with an investigation out of the highway office on some, some young girls who were involved in a crash coming home from a spring break trip. So I think a lot of times you don't think about the drowsy driving and how um, that, that young driver community is really one of the populations that is at greatest risk. And so I think, you know, just knowing the teens that live in my home and how their sleep schedules have been the last couple of months, I think. Um, reminding parents to talk about that too and, and knowing whether or not they have a well-rested teen, <laughs> you know, before they let them get behind the wheel. And that's been really important for me. Uh, my 19-year-old has started a job in which he gets off at 11 o'clock at night and, and sometimes 12. And mm -hmm. so emphasizing to him the importance of making sure you're rested and making sure that before you get in the car that you're feeling alert enough to drive and just being aware of the fact that fatigue is an issue for for young people um so yes i think it's it's critical to focus on that fatigue because a lot of times our young people aren't getting enough rest to begin with so making sure they're aware of how that interacts with driving sure mm -hmm. so in the um Throughout the years and, and time after time, the traffic safety community has worked really hard to call attention to motor vehicle crashes <clears throat> related um, deaths and injuries as a ongoing public health uh, epidemic. But now during the COVID-19 pandemic, it has been really challenging for us to find the right time to talk about these issues. I mean, no pun intended, we've had to take a back seat um, to what's going on because everybody is very focused. The news cycle is focused on the pandemic um, and everybody is just very concerned. So um, while 
while we saw a significant decrease in the number of vehicles on the roads across the country because everyone's following the stay-at-home orders, um, we still saw an uptick in speeding, um, both in terms of arrests and then also some crashes. Um, and that is being a significant contributor to these crashes and deaths that we've had over the last few months. What are your thoughts on that? And what concerns you about that, both um, in the pandemic and then moving forward as we as we kind of come back to our new normal of transportation and operations? Well, 2020 is going to certainly be an interesting year, statistically speaking, from a number of perspectives. Obviously, uh -huh. COVID-19 is already, we're, we're seeing those types of national numbers and local numbers, statistical evaluations of those numbers. We always do that type of evaluation in the highway safety community. Uh -huh. So in 2020, because there have been fewer drivers on the roadway, it may be that we see a, a change, a downward change in the total fatalities, especially during that time period where we had the strict stay-at-home orders for many mm -hmm. of the states that we all live in. But what those reports were talking about is that for the number of people that were on the roadway, the rates of these crashes and the rates of these fatalities were much higher. Mm -hmm. So if you had stayed at that same rate that we had previously, there was a very low rate for fatalities, although on our nation's roadways, on average, we still have over 36,000 people that die every year and obviously many more that are injured. Right. So statistically speaking, we may see a lower number of total fatalities, but a higher rate of these fatal crashes, which is obviously very worrying because mm -hmm. we want people, as we were mentioning earlier, we want people to adopt the safe speed. We want them to recognize the speed limit and drive at that speed limit so that they and their passengers are safe. We keep hearing these very tragic stories of avoidable situations where people are adopting too fast of a speed just because the roadways are open. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's really important. And as we mentioned earlier, it's it's important to drive for the conditions as well. Mm -hmm. So we'd always talk about that in the wintertime when we're talking about snow and ice. But that's also important in the summertime when we have those those very heavy rainstorms, thunderstorms that, that we often see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Leah, I th you know, talking about the fact that um, motor vehicle crashes, you know, outside of the, the space that we find ourselves in are a leading cause of death for for everyone in the United States. And, you know, just this morning I saw um, a new um, information out of Virginia saying that speeding crashes and then people being unbelted, oh. uh, you know, is up. And that's, I mean, you know, Chris and Rob and I have all been at NTSB for over 20 years each. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Leah, you've been working in the traffic safety space for uh, over a decade. And mm -hmm. it's, it's so surprising to think, to think that we're, you know, in 2020, still reminding people that you need to be buckling your seatbelt, you should be traveling at safe speeds. It just really emphasizes the fact that even with everything else going on, that we still need to focus on traffic safety, because it's it's still a huge problem. Um, and I think around the seeing, country. I think you're seeing a lot of people really trying to reduce their risks from COVID-19. Right. And the reality is, Traffic safety is, is it, is a whole exercise in reducing your risks. Mm -hmm. And the 36,000 people who die annually, uh, when we do an investigation, we always find things that could have been done to prevent that crash. 
You know, it's not inevitable. And so if we can take that extra effort to reduce that risk, to put down our distractions, to drive safe, to wear our belts, we can make a significant dent in that number. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't even, uh, that 36,000 number doesn't even address the injuries where, you know, people are having to go to the hospital, which is what we're trying to avoid you know, during this pandemic experience is to reduce the um, the load on emergency responders and uh, doctors and physicians. So, you know, while people are, are following the stay-at-home orders, it's still important to be very safe when you're out doing your necessary errands or what have you, um, getting from place point A to point B and still reduce that, uh, that burden on uh, first responders and emergency responders. Completely. And again, a lot of it is things that we can take action on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we need to take that responsibility. Absolutely. And it doesn't have it doesn't have to be a long trip. I think mm -hmm. some people yeah, right. will think, OK, I'm going to protect myself because I'm going on a long car trip. Sure. The majority of our crashes happen very close to home. Mm -hmm. And these can also be very serious crashes. So your local intersection that might be right around the corner from your house, if you're in a side impact crash, like if somebody mm -hmm. runs a red light and they're mm -hmm. speeding, it can be a very, very serious crash. So as Rob pointed out, you want to reduce your risks. So hopefully that seatbelt will never go into an emergency mode where it's locking you down and it needs to protect you and your airbags don't fire. Mm -hmm. But if you do get in that circumstance, you want to have the best protection and that seatbelt's going to give it to you. And mm -hmm. some of the some of the thoughts you hear when you're talking to people is like, I'm going on a short trip, so I don't really need my seatbelt. Um, or what is the speed I can actually go above the speed limit and still be OK? It's like, no, you can't. You can't go on a trip without your seatbelt. You can't drive above the speed limit. There's no rules you can kind of go by. It's you just follow the rules the way they are. Right. Yep. Right now, I'm not sure what area I want to transition to because there's so much that we could be doing with seatbelts and taking the conversation there, which is kind of where I'm leaning. But also, it's a really great transition into talking about automation. So I think I'm going to ask us to stay on the seatbelt side. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> Chris. And so um, in the last couple of months, some some areas that have been of, of focus areas for the NTSB have been... Um, Vehicles that kind of are falling outside of uh, regulatory requirements for for belts, and specifically, I'm thinking of um, li limousine. So um, the Schoharie, New York crash, where right, I, you know, not too long before, I think we found ourselves in the max telework and and stay at home space. Um, NTSB had released some new recommendations around improving the safety of occupants in. Um, in limousines and those types of vehicles. And I'm also thinking of the medium bus space where we've also recently made some more recommendations around uh, seatbelts in those vehicles. And then obviously seatbelts on school buses is, is a topic. So um, just want to <laughs> open that up to Chris and Rob and just, um, if you can just talk a little bit about kind of how, how the vehicles that aren't required to have seatbelts kind of, what allows that? And then what are the recommendations that we've made to really make sure that, you know, no matter what vehicle you're in, that you have the best available protection? Well, I guess we can start at the basics. So the basics that we always talk about is if a vehicle is equipped with a belt, and in some cases, the vehicles that you're talking about may be lap-only belts. 
If it's equipped with a belt, a lap belt or a lap shoulder belt, it's important to wear that belt and wear it properly. So for the lap belt, it has to be cinched tight. For the shoulder belt, you want it to be across your shoulders. Stephanie and Leah can give, obviously, much more details, and that's probably a podcast in itself. Uh, Now, for some of these vehicles, though, it, it may be that you don't necessarily think about a belt. So a limousine. Oftentimes, people are using a limousine in circumstances where they may not want to be driving themselves. So Mm -hmm. maybe it's a bachelorette party or a wedding party or something like that. And they're being very responsible because they're hiring somebody else, a professional driver in some cases, to drive them so that they can maybe drink alcohol or maybe have some other circumstances. So in that aspect, it's great. Now, the Skohari crash and some of the recommendations that we came out with in October 2019 are highlighting some of the risks. So in that crash, we had a driver and 17 passengers. It was a vehicle that in this case, we saw that it had a high speed crash after going down a hill and and no one was belted except the driver. The driver was wearing the lap shoulder belt. Some of the seats had lap shoulder belts. Some of the seats had lap only belts. None of the passengers were wearing the belt. It was a very severe crash. Mm -hmm. But what we also found was that that vehicle was an extended limousine. So basically it started out as an excursion SUV and early on in its life had been extended and there were additional seats placed in the center there. In those seats, there were lap only belts. They were poorly designed. So the NTSB made recommendations where we focused on, we need to design these belts properly. They need to be installed well. They need to be strong enough to be able to control someone's body in the case of a, of a crash. There were other belts, though, that were part of the original equipment with the vehicle. None of those belts were worn. So wearing the belt and wearing it properly is really important. Even in your, if you're in a circumstance where you may be wearing a prom dress or maybe a wedding dress, it's, it seems like some people wouldn't think about it. Like, well, I don't, I don't want to wrinkle my dress. But on the alternative is, you know, well, if you're in a crash, your best scenario is that obviously you're not injured at all. If you Mm -hmm. are injured, Mm -hmm. you want to be conscious. You want to be able to get yourself out of that vehicle in a timely manner in case there's any sort of post-crash factors. We've seen circumstances where there may be water involved or there may be fire involved. And so you want to be able to get out of that vehicle quickly. And some of the school bus incidents that we've seen is that the people that are belted are much less likely to have the head injuries. They're much less likely to lose consciousness. And obviously, if you lose consciousness, you're not getting out of the vehicle yourself. So there's a Mm -hmm. lot of benefits. So you have to you have to think about that. So the NTSB is constantly advocating for vehicles that don't have belts to be equipped with well-designed belts and for those vehicles that do have belts for people to be wearing them and wearing them properly all the time. And that's that's a thing that was really uh, disappointing um, with our recommendation uh, from Skohari on the limousine is, you know, it was a very high energy crash um, and there were seatbelts available, but there was no real science behind those seatbelts and what the standards were. They don't exist, you know, and so really that protection didn't exist for the people in those side facing seats that were put sure. in the uh, vehicle. You know, and it's also frustrating where people don't wear the seatbelts. Our first seatbelt for motor coach recommendation was in the 70s, your early 70s. And after decades, we finally got seatbelts on motor coaches. Um, and then the next several crashes we saw, no one wore them. 
Yeah, there were seatbelts available. People weren't wearing them. And, mm-hmm. and that's so frustrating, uh, you know, to, to have a success like that and then see it kind of not realized because people aren't willing to take that extra effort. Sure. As Stephanie mentioned, um, we could really talk a lot about all these different aspects, but I'm going to pivot over to the vehicle automation, um, which is a topic that has remained constant um, through the pandemic. Uh, in fact, in February, right before we went into the stay-at-home orders, your team completed its investigations of two crashes involving vehicles equipped with advanced driver assistance systems, uh, a 2018 crash of a Tesla in Mountain View, California, and a 2019 crash of a Tesla in Delray Beach, Florida. Would you talk about the circumstances of those crashes and the probable causes and what recommendations were issued uh, to address the safety issues um, in those crashes? Well, I'll start with the Mountain View crash. Um, in, in that case, uh, we had a driver who was using his Tesla in autopilot mode. So mm-hmm. sort of treating it like the car is going to drive itself and I'm free to do whatever I want. Uh, unfortunately, then that person decided to play a game while the car drove itself. But the lane markings weren't clear. Uh, could be any number of things that caused the car to actually steer itself into a gore area, you know, which was leading right up to a median uh, barrier. And it crashed into the median barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is something we've known for a while is that people, when they have a chance to automate a portion of their operating task, They'll do other things, you know, mm-hmm. and and the reality is, is we need to make sure they don't do other things, that they stay engaged. Uh, and one of our recommendations is that auto manufacturers and uh, the regulators need to come up with a way to really ensure drivers stay engaged, that if you're going to monitor the driver to make sure they're staying engaged, it needs to be effective, you know, um, so this system wasn't effective. Uh, the other thing is when you design a, a vehicle to allow it to be automated, there are rules in which it'll work in this environment, but not in this environment, you know, and you need to make sure you enforce those rules because you may know the rules, but the driver may not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're using a system uh, that they don't realize it's got some limitations that are going to make them riskier for them to use. Um, so you need to make sure that the system can't be abused in a way that allows it to be used in an area that has not been designed for. Mm-hmm. So when I talk to people outside the NTSB, it's always surprising to me because I always I always lead with, you can't buy a self-driving car. And they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> of course you can. And they give me all these examples. And every example that they give me is a system that's really an advanced driver assistance system. So Rob was talking about autopilot. Autopilot is composed of... Right now, two basic functions. One is that it's an adaptive cruise control, which means it's a cruise control normally. And if you're following a slower vehicle, it can follow at a set following speed. So it can adapt to its environment as long as it recognizes what that vehicle is in front of it. And Uh in most cases, it's trained to look for the backs of other types of vehicles. The back of a sedan, the back of an SUV, the back of some trucks, but not everything. Uh-huh. So there are some things that it misses. It's a, so the second part of autopilot is a lane centering system. So as Rob was talking about, this is looking for the lane lines on the right and left side of the vehicle. And then it centers itself between those. It may shift over a little bit, especially if you're passing by a large truck 
which makes it feel like it's really smart because it knows it knows we're passing <laughs> by a large truck. So it's moving over and I feel more comfortable with this. Mm-hmm. That can fool you into doing things that aren't necessarily the greatest choices. And that's exactly what Rob was talking about. In Mountain View, we have somebody playing a video game on their on their phone. Lane lines. One of the lane lines was degraded, so it started following another lane line that wasn't a proper area for the person to drive. They're driving in a in a gore area, an area they're not supposed to drive, and and unfortunately that ended in a um, previously damaged attenuator, energy attenuator. So basically, you know, where you have a barrier system, mm-hmm. there's something that's going to stop you from hitting that. So again, when I talk to people outside the NTSB, I start out with the you can't buy a self-driving car, and you have to understand that. So if mm-hmm. you're buying these systems, they are assistance. They will help you out if you understand how they work. If you assume that you can turn them on and then read your book or play your video game or crawl into the back seat and take a video of yourself while you're driving down the roadway, it, it, it's probably going to be, who knows, if bad things happen, if something happens unexpected that you need to react to or the vehicle doesn't recognize because it's not trained for that, mm-hmm. bad things are going to happen. And and that's what happened in one of our recent crashes that also came out in February. So in Delray Beach, Florida, mm-hmm. this was a, a Tesla Model 3. This, so this is the brand new Tesla, had all the latest and greatest on it. We often, Rob and I often talk about how no two accidents are the same. And then we have the Delray Beach crash, which is basically the same crash as we had in Williston, Florida a couple years earlier, except the truck is going in the other direction. So in both cases, we have a Tesla. The driver has it on autopilot. So the vehicle is controlling the speed and it's also controlling the lane position. And the driver, for some reason, is not paying attention to the roadway in front of them. They have a lot of trust in the system. These aren't limited access roadways. So the Tesla systems and many of these other systems talk about certain roadways that you can use them on. Mm -hmm. So limited access would be like a highway where everybody merges in the same direction. There's Mm -hmm. a merge on, a merge off roadway. These roadways in Williston and Delray Beach had cross traffic. Trucks could cross across them. They were doing deliveries. Cars could come across them. Tractor trailer in both cases crossed in front of this vehicle. These Both of these vehicles, and in both cases, the vehicle's automation system, that autopilot system that we're talking about, didn't recognize the vehicle. It doesn't look like the back of a car. And so a tractor trailer is passing right in front of them, and they don't see anything to them. Road is clear ahead. So it maintains the vehicle's speed, and in both cases, the vehicle ran right underneath the trailer and basically Mm -hmm. sheared off the roof down to, like, the bottom of the windshield, and in both cases, the driver died. So these are terrible circumstances. We made recommendations out of the Williston crash several years ago, some of the recommendations that Rob was talking about. It's unfortunate that we saw that exact same crash with a newer model, with newer software, with newer hardware on the system, the exact same crash happened. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that's terrible there is you get so many people who are advocates for these systems that they look at it in very s- specific ways to say, you know, the system worked just like it was designed. And you have to remind them that it, 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 it killed somebody. 
you mm-hmm. know, and and that was not designed to allow it to crash. It, it, and so there was a failure. And how can we fix that and prevent it? And and that's the part that's somewhat of a more hard sell for us. But we have to make it clear that that car with that driver, they operate as a system and they need to work together. And if there are limitations of either the car or the driver, they need to be compensated for. Sure. I know, you know, NTSB for for over well, I guess it's been about 20 years since we first started talking about technology and highway vehicles, obviously, and the rail and the aviation and marine space, you know, technology and in the aviation space has been around for a very long time. Um, but thinking of, you know, the naming of the technology of autopilot, and I think what you associate autopilot with is the aviation world where you have the impression that it's flying itself. So if you're buying a vehicle that has an autopilot feature, mm-hmm. it seems like you, you know, perception might be that, yes, you have a, a vehicle that can drive itself. Rob, we were talking about the fact that the vehicles themselves, and I think even the information that is communicated through the system to the driver is that it is meant to to work on a specific highway. But in these cases, the technology was operating on a highway that it said it shouldn't be operating on. So is there a mechanism that they could that, you know, could be built into the technology that would automatically disable it if it were on that on that type of roadway that it wasn't designed to to work on? Um, Absolutely. And, you know, we know some manufacturers do that already. Um, But there's a lot of, you know, we all have GPS systems in our car. It tells us exactly what roads we're going on. Uh, These automated vehicles also have that technology. And there are ways to limit where you can turn it on and turn it off. And and I think that we've seen some manufacturers do that already uh, with their vehicles. And and we just like to see it across Mm -hmm. all manufacturers. Um, So, yes. Sure. And then I know, you know, I have a vehicle that has a little bit of driver assistance technology. And I know, you know, we're always, it's like Chris was saying, it's driver assistance technology that we all can buy now, not driver replacement technology. And I know I've heard you and, you know, uh, NSAR on your staff who's always saying, you know, the technology is not better than an attentive, sober, engaged driver. Mm-hmm. So, um, so making sure that we're not doing things like playing a video game because we have this impression that our vehicle is driving for us is <laughs> certainly not a space that we all want to find ourselves in. Um, but also looking at the technology and the recommendations that that have come out of the investigations, um, consumer awareness and understanding of the technology that is available to them um, is something that that you have have recommended through the NCAP system. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the NCAP recommendations, especially since we know working, you know, in this space that there are limitations to the information that consumers are getting about their vehicles. So NTSB is a long advocate, as you're pointing out, Stephanie, long advocate for technologies that can assist the driver, because we recognize there are some circumstances where they may need some assistance. So collision avoidance systems, lane departure warning systems, these are systems that can help the driver. And we're always focusing on ones that have uh, proven safety technologies. So maybe you're in stop and go traffic and the car in front of you stops more suddenly than, than you were anticipating. Collision avoidance systems can alert you that there's a stopped vehicle or a slowing vehicle in front of you. And in some cases, if you don't take action and start braking, can brake for you. 
So we, we hear numerous stories of where these types of technologies are beneficial. Or, you know, we see passive systems like rumble strips on the roadways. Well, if you start to depart the roadway and you hit a rumble strip, that's a way to alert the driver that they're departing the roadway and it gives them an opportunity to steer back on. Mm-hmm. Lane departure warning systems are a similar technology, but it's just built into your vehicle. I think more and more people as they're buying newer vehicles are starting to see blind spot warning systems. Always assistance systems. It doesn't replace the active driver from them performing and surveying the driving environment around them. It's just an assist to help those drivers out. And in some cases, it may be very beneficial for certain sets of drivers. But it's important to understand how these systems function, what their capabilities are, where they may and may not function well. And of course, this is where it's getting into some of our recommendations. So we think that it's important for the consumer to be educated about these systems, not only that they may be present either as an option or standard equipment, but how those systems function. So what is the performance of these systems? Are certain systems better than other systems? And if so, if the consumer is buying safety, they need to be able to assess that one collision avoidance system may work at a wide range of speeds and another one may be limited to only slower traffic speeds. Well, when they buy that vehicle, they should know that. So that clear communication to the consumer of the effectiveness of these advanced technology systems that are going to assist them through the driving environment. We mentioned earlier, 36,000 fatalities. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of messaging out there of people wearing their seatbelts, of driving the safe speeds. We can add some additional safety by having these types of advanced driver assistance systems as well to help the driver out in those circumstances where something else may be going on. And again, these are helping the driver out. You know, when I read stories of somebody saying, well, I thought my forward collision system would stop me before I, I hit the back of that vehicle. Well, if you know you're coming up to the back of a vehicle, stop the vehicle. Don't wait <laughs> for the automation to do it. <laughs> right. You know, and the frustrating thing, too, is, yes, there's a lot of different systems out there. Uh, but when I tried buying a system for my car, uh, my son a car for my son, uh, I really was looking hard for these technologies and they're just not on the models he could afford mm-hmm. and, and trying to get those universally uh, out there to, again, help the novice driver who is going to make some errors uh, to capture those errors and, and maybe prevent that crash. Right. So we've, our recommendations to make the technology standard, like what you were saying, Rob, um, I think it's a, a perfect example of we don't want people to have to afford safety. We want it to be available to everyone. And so by having standard equipment on on all price points, uh, that that helps. And Absolutely. I asked about NCAP, which is um, the new car assessment program, which some people I think are familiar with, but not not everyone provides information to consumers on on what might be available on their vehicle. And then um, I know organizations like IHS, who has a lot of great information for helping people decipher, like you were saying, Chris, what models can do what and what might be the safest model in the technology available. And then, of course, my car does what? So if you're <laughs> if you're wondering just how that technology does or doesn't, you know, isn't supposed to work, that that's another great resource for for people as they're trying to purchase a new vehicle or figure out how that vehicle they have now might uh, might work especially Mm -hmm. with rating i mean because nobody seems to want to buy a vehicle that doesn't have five star crash rating 
you know, and so they're looking for that and they're making decisions and manufacturers know that and they're building cars to meet that. That's mm-hmm. why with the NCAP, we're trying to get them to rate collision avoidance systems um, because the reality is nobody's going to want a one-star collision avoidance system. That seems, <laughs> why would I try that? You know, so if you can rate them and, and really move them towards the five-star, we're going we're gonna to see a great, uh, you know, opportunity for reducing fatalities. Mm-hmm. Sure. Speaking of IHS Institute, uh, Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, they recently issued a report on the fully self-driving cars. And Rob, you've done a lot of work on the issue of the human-machine interface. Um, do you expect fully autonomous vehicles will be able to replace an attentive, sober human driver? And um, what obstacles or challenges are we facing or will we face on the road to fully autonomous vehicles? It's kind of a loaded few questions. <laughs> well, the reality is, again, when, um, you know, a couple things. When I was doing my research 25 years ago, automation existed in planes and the automation was very good with regard to controlling planes. Um, and we still haven't seen a replacement of pilots. Uh, same thing with our Metro Mm -hmm. system in DC. When that started, it had the ability to operate automatically, you know, as they saw some of the problems that automation can lead to, uh, they've actually started using it, not in automated mode at all. And that's Mm -hmm. been decades again. So as we start this process, uh, with cars, which is a much more difficult environment where cars are much closer than planes ever get. Um, (laughs) The reality of that driver disappearing, um, I I think, is really somewhat far-fetched at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be a while. Uh, And and we have experience from the other modes where people aren't operating as closely together to tell us that it's it's not as easy to replace a human operator. Uh, We're just so good with unique situations and responding to those unique situations. So um, I think it's something that people are striving for. I think in the meantime, we really need to take advantage of some of this safety technology that can mm-hmm. assist the driver and, mm-hmm. and, and deploy that instead of working for this perfect kind of nirvana of the car that just shows up, picks you up, and then takes off on its way without a driver that you can just read or, you know, unfortunately probably do your work um, while, while in the vehicle. And so... You know, let's focus on things we can do today, you know, mm-hmm. and and start putting that safety in place. And, you know, for those who are kind of worried about this taking their place like truck drivers, it hasn't happened in the other modes. So I think mm-hmm. it's really unlikely to happen anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Sure. Rob, you provided a good opportunity to segue into uh, the trucking space with your <laughs> with your last uh, last comment there. So. You know, throughout the the pandemic and obviously meeting the needs of the country as as COVID happened, um, the trucking industry has been invaluable to getting products um, to the the hospitals and first responders and to all of us. Um, but during that time, coincidentally, uh, the final rule for hours of service uh, became effective from FMCSA. And we know that um, to meet the demands that were, were needed to, on the trucking community to kind of loosen some of those hours of service restrictions to meet the demand that we had, um, we know that we don't want that to be a long-term um, implementation within the trucking community. But I know that the final rule with hours of service that came out was um, a little disappointing for NTSB based on some of our recommendations and the things that now are in place long term. And I just want to know if you could talk a little bit about um, 
that final rule and in so, some of the things that we were disappointed to see. Um, and then also things that we were happy to see, uh, so made it in right, right off the bat, the truckers have a critical role all the time, you know, basically a lifeline for all the things that we need daily groceries, electronics, industry needs. Um, they provide a, a critical service all the time. Right. Um, but especially during the, the COVID, we saw how critical that need was as things began to get short in certain areas or medical supplies need to be the truckers delivered. Um, mm-hmm. The reality is it's a tough job. You know, uh, 800 truckers will die a year uh, in doing their job. Um, and, you know, that's something that we need to do more on preventing. Um, in addition, you know, 5,000 people overall will die in heavy vehicle crashes. Um, you know, those are things that we need to work hard to prevent. Uh, the recent hours of service rule, that loosens safety. You know, and, and, and that doesn't help truck drivers uh, stay safe. It doesn't help the people around the trucks stay safe. Um, you know, there was one part of the rule uh, that, you know, they took away the whole kind of idea of taking a break. You drive eight hours and in that eight hours, you had to get away from your job completely to get some restorative, you know, kind of rest. Uh, they've gotten rid of that and said you can do your rest break while still working you know, doing things around the vehicle, uh, that's, that's not as effective. Um, you know, luckily there was one aspect, which was at any point during that, uh, during your day, you could take a three hour break, uh, and not have that count against your duty day, which would be 14 hours. It would allow you to go to 17 hours. That at least was not implemented. And that was great because 17 hour duty days, um, would be going back in the wrong direction when we got the hours of service changed a decade ago. So, you know, the truckers are a critical uh, uh, resource for this country, uh, but we want them to be safe. And, you know, we're calling for technology on their vehicles, you know, collision avoidance that we talked about earlier. We're calling for that to be on trucks. And, and we've had several collisions lately uh, that we're going to be releasing soon, a crash in Boise, um, a crash in Elmhurst, where trucks ran on the back into the back of stopped vehicles. You know, in, in, in those cases, the technology was available for them to warn them about that collision, but they decided not to purchase it because it would have been extra cost. You know, and, and that's, we hate seeing the idea of almost could have been avoided, but for cost, they weren't able to buy that safety system. So absolutely critical to have safe truckers and for their own livelihoods, their own families. Um, and the hours of service regulation that just went in place is a step back from that safety we'd like to see. Sure. And I know that talking about hours of service and the technology that those are actually issues that are on the NTSB most wanted list right now. So areas of concern that we have for all vehicles operating on the highway. But unfortunately, a lot of those, both of those issues do touch on the commercial vehicle side of things too. Yes. And there are places where we know we can improve safety if we were to implement those recommendations in the most wanted areas. So, you know, again, I can just encourage the regulators and, you know, people in Congress to take a look at those and, and try to act on the recommendations we're, we're proposing. Sure. And kind of comparatively to the or to contrast, I guess, the, the difference between the trucking industry kind of picking up and us relying a lot more on it. 
during the pandemic, we um, kind of saw, a, well, we didn't kind of see, we saw a complete reduction of school bus transportation and, you know, what we relied on those for. That kind of actually changed from transporting students to and from school to um, transporting meals um, to communities that the schools serve each each day, which is, you know, I think a great uh, use and a great pivot for the school buses. Um, but unrelated to that, um, during our um, stay-at-home orders and while we've been on maximum telework, um, in April, your team completed its investigation of the October 2018 fatal pedestrian crash at an Indiana school bus stop. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about the circumstances of that crash and its probable cause um, and those recommendations, Chris? Yeah, sure. So the NTSB, as you know, and we talked about at the previous podcast on school bus safety, we have a long history of looking at school bus safety. The Rochester, Indiana crash was an opportunity for the NTSB to look at the school bus loading and unloading zone. Uh So in that circumstance, we had children that were waiting to load onto their school bus. The school bus stop was set up so that the school bus stopped on one side of a high-speed roadway. In this case, it was a 55-mile-per-hour roadway. Mm-hmm. And the children had to cross that oncoming traffic, that 55-mile-per-hour roadway, to board onto their school bus. Mm-hmm. So we've seen many, many circumstances, and there's actually some studies that are done on how often school buses have illegal passings. So mm-hmm. when a school bus is stopped, the red lights are flashing, the stop arm is extended, other vehicles around that school bus need to stop because students are loading or unloading from that school bus. In this case, there was a pickup truck that was driving towards the school bus at the speed limit, around the speed limit. And unfortunately, it's not totally clear why this happened. That driver did not stop for the school bus. Mm -hmm. The driver didn't start to initiate any sort of braking until the children were in the roadway. And unfortunately, she struck several of those children, and there were multiple fatalities as a result of that crash. So Mm -hmm. the NTSB actually had a a webinar where we addressed some of the safety issues as a result of this. That's available on the NTSB's webpage. If people are interested in that webinar, there's, there's a lot of key information, and our investigators presented on many of the different safety issues and those safety improvements that we were looking for. Mm -hmm. So the predominant one, maybe the most obvious one, is that you need to have safe routes for these. So safe routes includes the safe loading zones. Mm -hmm. So you shouldn't have children crossing these high-speed roadways in order to board or, or come off the bus. So there were options at this stop and some of the other stops where the school bus could have stopped in a in a location that would have prevented the children from having to cross this high-speed roadway. There are a number of other recommendations as well that people can explore. And again, if they have an opportunity, there is a, a webinar addressing this Rochester, Indiana crash and the safety outcomes that we're looking for that's available on ntsb.gov. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about that webinar, too, and, and again, kind of a silver lining of our having to kind of work remotely is we had so many bus drivers, school bus drivers actually watch the webinar and their safety officers trying to encourage them to watch it and, you know, emphasizing that, you know, our message was meeting was was reaching the people who need that message. And, and, and that's just great to hear. Um, all the work we do, all the work that team did, you know, the message they had on choosing safe places to pick up kids was going to be implemented immediately 
by people who are do- making those decisions. And, and that's just great to hear when that's happening. Rob, Honest- that- go ahead. Oh, sorry, Stephanie. Honestly, we, we weren't sure because with all of the changes in schooling and e-learning, and then obviously the changes where transportation was was different. We weren't sure if this was the time to be able to push out our safety message. And as Rob pointed out, we were so pleased at the feedback that we got from this webinar because so many of the school transportation professionals were taking this opportunity where they weren't necessarily transporting students on a daily basis to use this as a learning opportunity and an opportunity for them to improve. So looking at their routes as NTSB may look at their routes and looking at potential hazards and seeing if there are alternatives. And so we were really pleased at the feedback that we got from that webinar because so many people were thanking us for taking this opportunity where we did have the stay at home orders and where they did have the opportunity to make these safety Mm -hmm. improvements before whatever may happen in September when when school starts up again. That was my question, uh, Chris. I was I was thinking that as you know, the school the, the school year just ended, but I know at least in the county I live in, they're already kind of putting out guidelines for what it might look like next year. And I know that transportation is really a big part part of that. You know, with the being able to keep children at a safe distance and what that will look like for for how you provide the busing and that sort of thing. And I guess my question to you all is: is as the school districts are really looking at school transportation and and maybe it is just that what's gotten them into it is you know the the covid and how they can transport kids safely to school next school year but what what areas do you hope that they they might also be focusing on i guess to improve we know that school bus safe school buses are the safest way to transport students to and from school no matter what but as they really are looking at that transportation safety area what are kind of the areas that you hope that they really do focus on outside of obviously the the routing being the new recommendations out of Rochester but if you had a wish list of other things that they were doing in the in the <laughs> school transportation space what would a couple of those things be well there's obviously a number of different areas that NTSB has focused on i think stephanie the key point is to emphasize that traveling by school bus to and from school and school-related activities is the safest, even if you don't have all these systems and technologies that I'm going to talk about here in a minute. But based on the situations that the NTSB looks at, and of course, we look at very severe crashes. So while they happen very infrequently, they can be catastrophic because our children are on these school buses, and oftentimes the school buses have many children on them. So when the school bus is involved in a crash, They are designed based on from some changes in 1977, a system called compartmentalization, closely spaced energy absorbing seats. These work very well in frontal crashes, but we found in side impact crashes and rollover crashes. So side impacts with another large vehicle. In some cases, we see that being a a dump truck or a tractor trailer or a train or a high speed rollover that the children, there's no protection side to side or up and down. Lap shoulder belts, passenger lap shoulder belts provide the best protection for children involved in these types of crashes. There's some other aspects that we talk about as well. So some of them are focused more on avoidance. So having a well-trained driver, one that's medically fit for driving is very, very important. Having one that has the capability to assist students if there is an emergency, whether Mm -hmm. that be a fire or whether it's water immersion, that driver needs to have the ability to help the students get off the bus. The driver needs to be able to get off the bus themselves. They need to be able to help get off the bus. 
Some of the collision avoidance technologies that we talk about are electronic stability control. Just like in a passenger car, there may be times where you're going around a curve too fast. And a stability control system can help you by reducing the speed and intelligently changing the braking on the wheels. Forward collision avoidance systems. We mentioned that earlier when we were talking about passenger cars. These technologies are also applicable to larger vehicles, as Rob was pointing out with the trucks, but also school buses as well. And then more recently, we've talked about fire prevention. While this is a, a rare event where we see somebody that's injured or killed in a fire in a school bus, we know that school bus fires do happen very frequently. If you look at the statistics and you talk about a, a school year when children are on the school bus, it may be once or twice a day that we see a school bus fire where the the school bus is lost. So that's an expense for a school district if they lose a bus as a result of a fire or maybe multiple buses if that fire happens in a school bus yard. There are certain areas to be able to either prevent that fire or to put out the fire very quickly if it does occur. So the NTSB has a wide variety of recommendations and, and we're very fortunate because the school bus community is active and they are aware of those and, and always working with us to try and find ways to get the money to be able to add these systems to their school sure. buses to be able to provide that safest environment for the children when they're going to and from school. Well, I just wanted to add one thing is, you know, another thing is if a driver has a history of, of, of medical events or poor driving, you know, the school districts need to keep track of that and then take action uh, to make sure those drivers are taken out of the job. Uh, you know, our investigations of our Chattanooga and Baltimore crashes both included drivers who'd had histories either of medical or poor driving, and just nobody took action on it. And and so that's one other area that we asked the school districts to focus on. Sure. And I was going to say that the we have a um, a page dedicated to school school bus safety. So if anybody wants to learn more about our recommendations and some of the investigations that we've um, discussed. It's ntsb.gov forward slash school buses. And so the link to the webinar that Chris mentioned and the, um, the Chattanooga and Baltimore um, investigative report that we did are all available there. Um, I was just thinking, Chris, as we were talking about pedestrians um, as it relates to, to the school bus space, but and we did touch a little bit on it when we were talking about the safety reminder campaign, um, but the NTSB has recently done um, reports on on pedestrians and bicyclists specifically and we really haven't talked about um those vulnerable road users so i just wanted before we before we finish if we can just talk a little bit about um some of the things that we've recommended recently to to just make the the road system safer for for those road users well, let me start with the technologies on the vehicle, and then I'll turn it over to Rob, and he can he can add more to that. So there are systems that can be on your cars. So we talked about collision avoidance systems, and predominantly ones that are looking for the other cars on the roadway to detect those. There are systems that can detect pedestrians and bicyclists as well. And so these are systems that can help the driver to recognize and avoid pedestrians and bicyclists on the roadway. So this is one of those aspects where we talk about the NCAP, the new car assessment program, where some of these evaluations of these collision avoidance systems can focus very broadly, not just on how it performs in um, environments with other passenger cars, but how it performs in environments with vulnerable road users. 
I think also, you know, the idea of the infrastructure needs to support these vulnerable road users. Um, in a number of cases, when we did our pedestrian uh, special investigation, we had people walking along roadways with no sidewalks. And we had people waiting for lights that were never going to change for them because it didn't take into account pedestrians. And so they ended up crossing against the light and getting hit. Um, so the infrastructure needs to support them. Bicyclists driving on a, on a roadway without any uh, kind of special space for them uh, is just so risky. Uh, so we've called for that. Um, and then we've also called for, it, it seems crazy, but the reality is you can design cars and trucks to interact better with these vulnerable road users so that on a truck, they don't go underneath the vehicle. You might put up guards to keep them from going underneath. For cars, you may have a, something just softer for them to, to, when they hit a pedestrian, they don't necessarily cause as much harm. Um, you know, both of those, the infrastructure design and, and the vehicles to be more compatible with vulnerable users, um, are, are things that we've recommended. Sure. Mm -hmm. And for people, for under ride protection is what you were talking about specifically for, yes. for larger trucks. That's something that we've advocated for for a long time. So side and rear under guard protection so that when a pedestrian or even highway, uh, passenger vehicles um, interact with a, a large vehicle, that there's something that would prevent them, like we were saying with the with the Williston and the Delray Beach, that there's technology that can be installed on, on trucks that would prevent a car or a person or a bicyclist from going underneath the vehicle. And, and mm -hmm. certainly, again, improvements on the visibility around those vehicles uh, for both pedestrians and bicyclists, because uh, larger vehicles have a large blind spots. Uh, and so I'll kind of working on ways to decrease those blind spots through either mirrors or technology, um, can prevent them from hitting vulnerable road users they don't even see. So, so Rob's hitting on another topic that we haven't touched on yet, but is certainly valuable here. The NTSB has long talked about connected vehicles. So vehicles that can talk to each other. So we're talking about, so far we've talked about all these collision avoidance systems where the sensors that are on your vehicle have to be able to see and recognize whatever that other vehicle is in front of it or whatever that hazard is. There are opportunities where vehicles can talk to each other and maybe talk to others that are on the road too, including vulnerable road users. And then you don't necessarily have to see and detect within that vehicle yourself because you're each sending out information that I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And the vehicles then can give warnings. So if someone is coming up at an intersection and it's clear that that car is not going to stop at the red light, your vehicle can give yourself a warning to break that there's a hazard coming and that there's a vehicle that may not stop at that intersection. It may not be that you can see that vehicle. These are circumstances, and, and Rob was pointing it out as well, that large trucks have blind spots. Other vehicles have blind spots. There are also many circumstances, especially in some of the, the situations that what Rob was talking about, where you have a queue for some reason on the roadway, whether it's a work zone or you have a previous crash that has happened, and a queue forms. So cars are backed up, and they're either slower moving or stopped, and maybe you're coming up over a hill, and you don't see that those vehicles are stopped. This is especially vulnerable for trucks that have just such a large mass to them that it's 
they can be very destructive if they're involved in these types of crashes. Connected vehicles give you that opportunity where a vehicle can say, okay, there's a, an emergency braking event that happened ahead of me. Something must be going on ahead of me. And now I can adopt a slower speed until I have a better understanding of what that emergency may be. That's, um, this conversation just always reminds me and pretty much any conversation that we have on the podcast, I feel as though each of these little, um, topics that we've been touching on, we could probably feature an entire podcast on. <laughs> Um, but we are getting to, towards the end of our of our time. I just wanted to ask one final question um, is that, you know, in the aviation space, we've seen um, aviation companies, commercial airlines making a lot of change in, in terms of their practices on how they're going to operate and how we're operating in the wake of COVID-19. Do you think or how do you think the pandemic might impact um, travel on America's highways? I think one thing right away is people are going to be uncomfortable uh, with transit systems or with rail systems. Mm -hmm. And so more people are going to be walking and biking uh, than before or, or driving their cars. And so the risk for vulnerable users in kind of urban areas is, is going to be increased. Um, another area that I think, and this goes towards your, your traveling for the long trips, is as people are reluctant to go back on planes, they're going to go on longer trips with their mm. cars. And mm -hmm. again, they're going to need to make sure they're properly maintained, the tires are, are ready for those trips, and that they're getting adequate rest and not pushing themselves too too far. So, you know, I think uh, until we feel more comfortable again, uh, some of these mass transit opportunities uh, are going to be used less, which means mm -hmm. it's going to be heavier use of the highway system, and then that much more critical that we do what we can to reduce risks in that system. Sure. Chris, any thoughts? I think it's been interesting during this time period where so many of us are working from home and we see these roadways that aren't congested. It's a just a very interesting perspective. I think for some of us, we've never seen our roadways without some sort of congestion. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm hoping that we can look to this time period and see if there's ways that we can continue this, where there is this mobility that people have. They don't have to think about the traffic that they need to get through to get to where they're going. So this increased mobility, but still getting there safely, as Rob pointed out. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunities that people can explore here. And there's a space in our traffic community that we haven't even thought about or we haven't seen in so many years because there's just so much congestion. But how much of this travel is necessary? And, and if it's not all necessary, what are our alternatives? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, we are at the end of our podcast. Stephanie, do you have any uh, final questions that you did not get answered today? No, I, I think we've touched on just about everything I could, <laughs> we could think of right now. We've touched on a lot of, a lot of different highway issues. And so Chris and Rob, thanks so much for your time. Um, it's been really great to talk to you both. We've had lots of opportunities to talk to the investigators of the Office of Highway Safety on particular investigations or projects that they've been working on. But it's been really great to just kind of talk about everything highway safety with you all this afternoon. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. And uh, I, I very much enjoyed it. So feel free to ask me again soon. 
Great. (laughs) Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks, Lee. I enjoyed it and especially enjoyed being with Rob this time to be able to share some of the some of the thoughts that we talk about maybe one on one, but share it with a larger audience. So thanks for inviting us to be part of it today. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I echo Stephanie's thoughts and just really appreciate your time. I want to thank our listeners again for tuning in today to our podcast. And thank you, James Anderson, for being our producer and uh, making everything run smoothly. Thank you, Stephanie, again, as my co-hostess. And we look forward to speaking with you next time on the podcast. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye. Bye.